You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, we often rely on the experiences of others to inform our purchases. Reviews are important, but what if most of them are fake? You're in a theater, you're watching a movie, and the tension is high. The main character silently walks through a door when, bam, the killer jumps out suddenly and you jump out of your seat in fear. How has this staple of movies come to be? We explore the history of the jump scare. Movies that actually change the world. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. All right, Jay, I love Haribo gummy bears. Which, by the way, there's a lot of controversy on how you actually pronounce it. So if anybody from Haribo uh, is listening, please let me know. I'm going to continue on just calling it Haribo. Wait, what are the, what are the alternatives? I didn't even know there was controversy. Uh, Haribo. <laughs> that just seems pretentious. I've heard at least four, maybe four to five. I just call them Haribo. Have you ever had them? I mean, you, you know I love them. They're delicious. I mean, I only really have them at your house. You always have like a five-pound bag of them sitting around at all times. Because there is only one brand of gummy bear worth eating, and it's Haribo gummy bears. Well, Jay, years ago, I was talking to a friend about my love of this very specific brand of gummy bear, And Jay, that's the day that I learned about the bizarre world of Amazon reviews. You see, Jay, Amazon, the massive online retailer, has a little issue. As the company has grown, so have the amount of fake reviews that dominate certain products. Haribo gummies, sadly, have fallen victim to this. Have you had any experience with fake Amazon reviews? I mean, I'm not really sure. I obsess over reviews. I will just sit and stew over any review that I read for weeks. Um, There could be like 5,000 five-star reviews, but I'll sit there and just read like the one one one-star review over and over and over because I'm afraid that that's going to be me (laughs) and it'll just prevent me from buying something. Well, poor Harry Bojay. Here's uh, one example of the kind of review that people leave on these beloved gummy bears. This comes from uh, Amazon reviewer Jack. Jack says, this is not a warning. This will cause your rectum to enter turbo mode and empty your entire (laughs) life out of your rear. You can try eating these gummies in moderation. You can try waiting days between eating them. It does not matter what you try. It is inevitable. These will destroy you from the inside out. But on the plus side, it's the best laxative you can find. (laughs) And Jay, while it is true that reviews like this are common, many of us, both of us included, still rely on reviews for our purchases. We've all been there, right? You're looking for something specific on Amazon, and so in true informed consumer fashion, you look at all of the options for the product you need. Like, for example, we all have beds and pillows, and I was recently looking for a pillow for my son. And Jay, you would be shocked at the amount of pillows that are available. Overwhelming. How's it made to choose? Obviously, had to turn to the reviews. And most of us do this. There are millions of items on Amazon. So if it's a company we're unsure of or have never heard of, reviews seem like a helpful, logical way to inform our purchase. But much like the gummy bears and what I experienced also with the pillows, Amazon reviews are quite often questionable. 
And Jay, it's not always just people trying to be funny talking about diarrhea either. The Chicago Tribune, utilizing the reporting of internet monitoring service FakeSpot, reported in 2020 that up to 42% of the over 720 million reviews on Amazon (laughs) could be fake. Oh my gosh, that is so much higher than I thought it was going to be. And and Jay, these fake reviews obviously surged during the pandemic. But the problem, it's not new. The false product reviews, sometimes coming from an actual human being paid to sabotage product credibility, but often coming from an automated internet bot that hones in on a select product, these have been an issue for companies like Amazon for a long time. For its part, Amazon hasn't been shy in addressing the issue. An Amazon spokeswoman told the Tribune that the company is, quote, aware of bad actors attempting to abuse the system and is investing significant resources to protect the integrity of our reviews. And Jay, while there are third-party companies that are literally devoted to weeding out bad reviews, the problem becomes more difficult to fix as scammers become more sophisticated. Things like Amazon's one-tap review, for example, seem like something that should really help consumer confidence, but instead, it's one of the main vehicles that fraudulent review systems utilize. So, Jay, my friend, how can you not get duped into buying the worst pillow ever when the time comes for you? Well, here are four methods from Business Insider to help spot fake reviews and buy that pillow with confidence. Here we go. Number one, look at the percentage of one to five star reviews. If 70% of the reviews are four to five stars gushing over the pillow and 30% are one star reviews saying that the pillow ruined their lives, that's a red flag. Number two, see if the reviews are vague. If good reviews simply say, love it, and bad reviews say, it sucks, or for our younger audience, it stinks, the review is probably fake. Number three, If the review mentions another product by name, so for example, here's a real yet probably fake pillow review for Beckham Hotel Collection Pillows. Quote, arrived with mold. Awful. I think I'll go back to Casper. (laughs) (laughs) Number four, study the popularity of the product. If uh, the pillow in question is from an unknown company and has something like 180,000 reviews saying that it's durable to complement your nice thread count sleeping experience, Jay, it's probably fake. Because who doesn't just say that normally in conversation? Like, wow, Dave, this pillow that I bought, uh, it really enhances my thread count experience. You would be shocked. In the circles that I run in, thread counts, they, they do come up quite often. But as with most things, my friend, perhaps the best rule to follow when trying to find that perfect item on Amazon, whether it be a pillow or a set of silverware, if the reviews seem too good to be true... Yeah, they probably are. Well, this does shake my confidence in uh, the review system. And I'm just kind of wondering, from a marketing perspective, if you're Haribo, I guess is how you say it, what do you do here? Do you try to like scrub all the reviews or do you just lean into the joke? Like, what's your play here? You know the product you have is so elite that no <laughs> amount of diarrhea reviews can stop the soaring sales of the gummy bears. We got to get this podcast sponsored by Haribo. It's just, uh, it's a match made in heaven. This is the first step. So Dave, I know you, and I know that uh, probably the thing that you hate more than anything in the entire world is being scared during a movie, especially in the theater. Hate it, man. Hate horror movies. Um, I've got so many stories of either 
somebody like forcing me to go to one or me trying to play it cool and acting like I wanted to go to one, but also kind of like closing my eyes during the entire movie. Just, oh, it's been a lifelong problem. Yeah, I do remember the time that I sort of peer pressured you into seeing the movie It. No, you didn't peer pressure me in. <laughs> we had a bet and you made me pay up on it. Well, you know, don't make the promise if you're not ready to, <laughs> and I ready went, to follow through. I went. Like a true you man. Did. Let the record show you. You sat through the whole movie. You might have been looking through your through uh, your fingers, but you you sat through the whole movie. One of the most powerful techniques a filmmaker can pull out of the toolbox to use to build suspension in a film is the jump scare, which is when at the height of tension, something pops onto the screen, usually with a quick sound or music swell that causes our fear to spike for a moment. And this technique, although I know you hate it, Dave, has been established, it is a staple of movie making, especially in the horror genre. So when did it start? When did a filmmaker try this for the first time? And why has it become so ingrained in films? So we actually have to go all the way back to 1925 to find the first documented jump scare in one of the most famous films of the century, The Phantom of the Opera. Most of us know the scene. The Phantom's mask is torn off, revealing the horrifying face beneath suddenly. And while it probably wouldn't have the same effect today, it certainly shocked audiences in the 1920s. Music during this time would have been played live to accompany the moment, and we'd have to think that the music played a part here too. So through the 1930s, Universal kept making horror films based on monsters like Dracula and Frankenstein and the Invisible Man and others, but none of these really featured jump scares. So Dave, the next real jump scare of value didn't appear on screen until 1942 in a film called Cat People. And in the scene, the main character is walking down the street, being followed, and the silence is suddenly interrupted by a bus screeching onto the screen. So this time, the scene was accompanied by sound, and it really seems to be the first modern version of what we know of as the jump scare. However, the jump scare wouldn't appear again until around 1960, when the master of horror himself, Alfred Hitchcock, truly frightened audiences with his famous shower scene in his film Psycho, in which the killer pulls a shower curtain back and murders a woman over screeching music. And Dave, reportedly, the scene was so shocking at the time that people screamed and fainted while watching this movie in the theater. And so from there, the jump scare, it took off, popping up through the 1960s in films like The Haunting and Night of the Living Dead, and then all through the 1970s in films like Jaws, Carrie, and The Exorcist. And then it exploded in the late 70s and into the 80s in popular horror films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Child's Play. So today you won't find a single horror film without one or many jump scares. And while the technique may seem cheap on the surface, there's a level of nuance to it. What makes a jump scare work is classic misdirection, says C. Robert Cargill, screenwriter of the movie Sinister. A good jump scare is a magic trick. It's, I'm going to get you to look over here while I'm doing this, and then out of nowhere, bam, something is going to get you. So Dave, the technique has manifested in innovations that have evolved into tropes, such as like closing a mirror and something being in the mirror that wasn't there before, or the you think the killer's dead, but guess what? They're not trope. And filmmakers pay homage to past films in these ways uh, when they choose to scare their audiences uh, in certain methods. But jump scares wouldn't be in films if audiences didn't find value in them. And Dave, although you're not the target audience here, 
horror fans, they really love jump scares. So what happens in our brains when we're scared by a film? The fear center in our brain, the amygdala, is very powerful. Fear activates our adrenaline, our senses heighten, our brains recognize patterns of fear in ways that help us remember danger. And even though we don't need it like we did in the early days of civilization, sitting in a theater to purposefully be scared can be a way of bottling up that experience in the modern world. Now, although this technique is welcomed by many, not all of us share in the love of jump scares. In fact, Dave, I know you know about this website. There are places on the internet that you can go that will spoil every jump scare in a movie so you can prepare yourself beforehand, most notably the site wheresthejump.com, which details even down to the second on a timestamp when jump scares occur so you can map out the bathroom break accordingly to miss it. Where's the jump even gives out a jump scare score so you know exactly how many scares to expect when watching the film. So Dave, I owe it to our audience here to ask, when was the last time that you used where's the jump.com? Well, I'll do you one better. So I'm going to do uh, our audience a real service here. So if you're you're like me and you want to go to these movies, but you, you maybe you don't even want people to know that you don't want to go. Here's a resource for you. It's better than Jay's website. It's called Kids in Mind. <laughs> okay. Is this okay, like so the focus is, on the family reviews no, or whatever? No, this, that's is, a, this, is a, this is a website where people go and review films and lay out everything in the movie so you can know whether or not you should take your kid. It's not a religious-leaning site. It's, it's just a site that has all the content laid <laughs> I think, out. I think Jerry Falwell runs this site. <laughs> so, so, for example, I went to It when I lost the bet to Jay. I knew the one scene that I didn't want to see. I kind of knew when it was coming. Faked a bathroom break, <laughs> went to the bathroom, came back. It was over. It wasn't that scary you had outside like a of note that card. scene. <laughs> Kids in mind. I will say they're always asking for donations on the site. I haven't ever given. Probably never will. Probably should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're not donating to Wikipedia, you know you're definitely not donating to whatever that is. <laughs> Kids <Then>. in mind. <laughs> So here, for example, this movie probably doesn't need it. So there's a new movie called The Dog with Channing Tatum. Uh, Apparently, it's got very low violence. Not a lot going on there. It's a four. uh, But Kids in Mind checked it out for you. Good to go. Yeah, that one's for free. Jay, think how crazy it would be to create something that literally changes the world. Like an invention, the telephone, the light bulb, the wheel for you cavemen fans. Now, while you probably wouldn't know the impact of your invention until after your death, it just blows my mind, man, to think that we're capable of creating things that affect so many other people. Well, the ancient Mesopotamians did not invent the wheel just for you to slander them and call them cavemen. <laughs> what did they? What was their apparel? What did they wear? What was their dress? <laughs> I mean, depends on your social satchels class, I guess. and sandals. Cavemen, <laughs> they had cities, civilization. Cavemen had cities and caves. You need to come sit in my class. But Jay, how about art? Okay, maybe Van Gogh's Starry Night, Andy Warhol's Campbell Soup Can, or Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. These art pieces changed the world and changed the way that we talk and think about art. But what about an industry more near and dear to our hearts? What about movies? Has a movie ever actually changed the world just by existing? Often, simply considered entertainment or escapism, most movies fit into these categories. We watch stories about a crazy little wizard like Harry Potter, a toxic yet powerful ring, Lord of the Rings, 
or a bunch of green guys, Ninja Turtles, and we escape our lives for a few hours. Maybe these films lead to fun or meaningful conversations, but have movies ever actually impacted our world with a sustainable change? That's the question. Well, yes. Sometimes, intended or not, Jay, a movie actually shifts our society in a measurable way. Let's look at a few interesting examples of this very thing. Our first stop, the Tom Cruise classic Top Gun. The film featuring Tom Cruise playing a character so cool that he literally goes by the name Maverick. Feature, which actually, will you call me Maverick for the rest of this episode? Uh, I don't know about that. It's pushing it a little okay, too far. Well, we'll see. Top Gun features some of the most exciting aerial scenes ever captured on film. I know you brought that up, by the way, because you want to call me Goose, and I will not allow it. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, though, Goose, Top Gun was actually made in conjunction with the U.S. Navy. In exchange for providing resources for the film, the Navy actually got final script approval and made tons of changes to the final product. And while the film wasn't actually an official recruiting movie for the Navy, it ended up serving as one. After the film was released, enlisting numbers went up by 500%. I mean, who didn't want to be called Maverick Goose? (laughs) I still do. Next, we look at a movie called Sideways, starring Paul Giamatti. Sideways tells the story of friends Miles and Jack, two alcoholics who go on a week-long wine-tasting tour as part of a midlife crisis. The film was a huge success at the box office, but it also changed life outside of it. In the movie, Miles constantly shares his love for the wine Pinot Noir, while saying how much he hates the wine Merlot. As a result, sales of Pinot went up 16% nationwide, while Merlot actually fell a few points. And Jay, both wines have never really recovered. And this movie came out in the (laughs) mid-2000s. How about a cartoon? In 1942, Disney released its classic film, Bambi. Bambi is, of course, the coming-of-age story of a young deer. Bambi meets many woodland creatures as he grows up until ultimately his mother is brutally murdered, albeit, well, probably legal in the eyes of the law, by an unnamed hunter. And Jay, get this, interestingly enough, people were and still are so bothered by the killing that the hunter came in at number 20 on the American Film Institute's top 100 villains of all time. (laughs) But bigger than that... Bambi has been credited with decreasing the popularity of hunting, and it actually serves as the springboard for making anti-hunting groups a reality. A cartoon! How about a few films that could be more characterized as documentary films? Blackfish is a documentary about the legendary orca whale Tilikum. Tilikum was the premier whale at SeaWorld and was responsible for at least three human deaths in its long life. The film obviously aims to showcase how intelligent the orca whales are, but also how it's probably not a great idea to make them into circus performers, doomed to a life of entertainment. They are intelligent animals, but uh, at heart, they are still animals. SeaWorld suffered from the backlash almost immediately. Attendance declined and has never really recovered. The stock price at SeaWorld fell by 50%. SeaWorld did eventually say that its current group of orca whales will be the last that the theme park ever utilizes, but the damage had kind of been done. Jay Blackfish basically forced SeaWorld to retire its biggest star. 
Yeah, it's still like that today too. Like if you, anytime uh, on Twitter or something, like if SeaWorld tweets anything, they just get ripped apart by people. (laughs) I mean, that movie has a lot of staying power. Yeah, they will never recover. But Jay, what about perhaps the most important movie on this list? And this actually might be the most important movie ever made. The 2004 documentary film, Supersize Me. Filmmaker Morgan Spurlock set out to discover just how bad fast food is for you, really. Spurlock spent an entire month eating nothing but McDonald's three times a day. Every time they asked him, would you like to supersize that? He had to. It was part of the, part of the deal. By the end of the experiment, he was depressed, had lost a lot of muscle mass, and had gained 30 pounds. Go ahead and get to it. We know why you're bringing up supersize. We're getting me. there. We're getting there. Okay. <laughs> Six weeks after the film, McDonald's officially dropped the legendary supersize option from its menu. But, Jay, that's not what makes this film so important, as you just alluded to. It was also the motion picture debut of a young Dave Traub who had a brief yet impactful appearance in a scene from his junior high health class. And I remember when Super Size Me came out, all all jokes aside, uh, a a lot of friends and I obviously went to the theater to watch it so we could see, because I knew I was going to be in it. I had to sign a release. And so we're watching, we're watching, we're watching. The scene comes. I'm literally on screen for maybe two seconds. (laughs) Showbiz, baby. Showbiz. Maybe we need to make some sort of a deal like we'll make another bet. You go to a horror movie that I choose, and if you sit through the whole horror movie without going to any websites, then I'll call you Maverick for a whole episode. Yeah. All right, Goose. I like the way you think. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Salmons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.